You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Welcome to the Long Forum Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer. Evan Ratliff and Max Linsky, my co-hosts, are here. Hey, Aaron. Guys. In the studio. I really um, like your teal on teal thank look you. that you're sporting today. It's for the U.S. Open. It looks like... I'm going to see Serena Williams. We'll see you on TV. That's the best. Oh, yeah. shit. Is it your birthday? It's my birthday. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I'm sorry. Happy birthday. Thank you. Happy birthday, Aaron. I forgot it was your birthday. <laughs> Aw. Uh, it is my birthday. It's also, I will say, my... Uh, Last in-studio appearance uh, until November. If you need me, I'll be on a bus. Can we tell people about your secret other life? Uh, if you want to come meet me during September or October, go on Chance the Rapper's website and check out his tour dates. I think the whole tour is unfortunately sold out, but come see the Chance the Rapper and my band, Francis the Lights show. We're going all over America playing songs. Even if people don't have tickets, they can still show up and meet you. I, actually, I will say, if you live in a non-major metropolis... Send me a DM. I might be able to help you out. Like it is it. amazing that w- this is episode 211 that we waited this long to mention that Aaron is also in a hugely successful, fantastic band. <laughs> Thank you. Thank I you. thought I wasn't supposed to tell anyone. Happy birthday, man. <laughs> Thank you. Happy birthday. Who did you talk to for this episode? Um, actually, good segue because our guest this week is Naomi Zeichner, who's the editor in chief of The Fader which is a music magazine. It is a very interesting time to be the editor-in-chief of a music magazine, and she had many interesting things to say about that. Started as an intern. Intern to editor-in-chief. That's awesome. How about sponsors? We've got one, a loyal, trusty sponsor, MailChimp. That's how uh, our business sends emails with MailChimp. That's how Adivis sends emails. Fact. Eight million other businesses use MailChimp for their email, and uh, you should too. But first... Here's Aaron with Naomi Zeckner. Welcome, Naomi Zeckner. Hi, how's it going? I want to talk to you about how you became the editor-in-chief of The Fader, but before I even get there, I'm, I'm curious about when you tell a stranger on a plane, what do you do? How, how do you describe The Fader today? Sometimes I just say I work at a rap magazine. Okay, that's interesting. It's not. I mean, that's not the truth, but I think it's the most easy for people to grasp or the most sort of directly relevant to the work that I do day to day. Yeah. Um, sometimes I say I work at a magazine about emerging music. Hmm. Um, As the uh, person sitting next to you on the plane, I, I find both of those 
They both got me interested. But so, I mean, yeah, and I never say I work at the Fader. I always say I work at a music magazine because I think by and large people don't know about the brand. I mean, or especially like anybody over the age of 25. Interesting. As, I mean, in my experience, I'm not meeting a lot of casual Fader fans <laughs> on planes yet. So when you change that equation and you're looking internally and you're in a story meeting, like what is a Fader story to you today? Typically we do profiles, right? So yeah. like the bread and butter is stories about interesting people that mm-hmm. are really relevant in our culture. Yeah. And I think that that is sort of a culture born of musicians and that sort of very true to kind of the legacy of the fader. The idea is that like music is the world, the world is music and that musicians are part of the world and music fans are part of the world and that sort of the particular community around the musicians we like might be interested in a certain kind of thing. Right. So that is sort of how we choose the musicians. Very often publicists or artists or whatever, a question I get the most from those people sort of like, oh, like you feature bigger artists now or you mm-hmm. used to feature indie artists. And I'm kind of like, that's that's just like never been part of the equation right. on whether the story is interesting or not. Do you think about the size of our artists or the sort of the cultural familiarity of the audience with an artist when you're considering them? Absolutely. I mean, something I think about is like, does this person have more of a sort of social following or social community than like one of my writers? If they don't, it doesn't mean that I'm not going to cover them, but I'm probably not going to invest a lot of money in it uh, (laughs) because I don't have a lot of money. Okay. So I do want to make sure. And I think Fader has always been almost like reflective of the culture, sort of like if people are actually into you, then maybe there's a reason that we can identify, like we can diagnose that reason and that becomes a story for us. So I think you have to have created some noise. And I think that's why Fader in some ways, like if Fader has been known for covering new artists, I think it's like been known for covering artists that there's like a lot of hype around, a lot of conversation around, and that maybe that those artists were seen as like small or upcoming or emerging. But I think what has always interested Fader is like, what is that conversation about? What does it mean when you are the first person coming in to write about an artist at that depth level? I think a lot of times I see the task as like, it is our responsibility to create the definitive historical document of these people. And then to some extent, also to kind of like set a narrative. Like we did last year a cover story about Zayn Malik, who is somebody who had, I mean, obviously written about at great length and had done profiles in one direction. But because we had like the sort of first crack at that story and he's done only like a million covers since, yeah. uh, you know, I think like the story I was trying to go get was just like a definitive document of what he was trying to say about himself at the time. Almost like, you know, in some ways with a character like him, it's like how much is it what narrative he's interested in sharing. But how does a crack like that end up in the Fader's court? I mean, that's a weird one. I actually like he started working with a publicist who we had just had a relationship with. Uh-huh. And I think in a good publicist who kind of like had a sense of like, oh, this would be a weird move. We were really psyched. He was like a character that we had been talking about for a long time. You know, I think I'm I'm personally and um, my deputy editor were very like pop interested. So we were huge fans. And I think that was enticing for us in terms of audience and just like having the opportunity to kind of get in there before other people got in there and to put our spin on his spin was cool. Um, but like, I think every cover story comes to us in a really different way. And sometimes we're like, sometimes people really don't get it and they think the timing is wrong and we're like clawing and tantruming, trying to make people see why we want to have this type of access at this time. And like, and I almost think that like, that's always when the stories work out the best. If if it aligns too well, often it means that the story doesn't really need to exist except for the promotion of the artist, which is cool sometimes. 
Does that mean that a lot of these stories are starting out as negotiations with publicists? Yeah, usually. I think yeah. sometimes there's like, I'll call a manager mm-hmm. or, you know, I'm, I'm usually not like directly calling right. a kid. But yeah, publicists are like huge figures in my life. Right. <laughs> does everyone have a publicist? Like even more reclusive people, like does Frank Ocean work with a publicist? He is in a weird Yes, but like a couple different people from different teams, but that's a very opaque situation. Interesting. Everybody has a person. Right. You know, like sometimes it's like their cousin. Sometimes it's just the person who like answers the phone yeah. or the booking agent or whatever it is. Like right now I have one story that I'm like working with brand representatives and a private PR firm and like a sports agent. And, you know, I have other stories where I am like like DMing for a Gmail. So what happens when your goals with a story are not congruent with the goals of one of those other constituents, be it a publicist or a agent? How much are you negotiating for what you want in the story? Well, to some extent, I don't want to know what their goals are at all. Right. right? And that's like how you cannot avoid that. Or if it's really transparent, actually, at the outset that like they have an idea of what they're able to give that isn't what I need to make my story, then maybe it's something that we just wouldn't do. Um, but it is, I, I mean, it's a huge part of my job. Sometimes I know that there's something re- somebody's really sensitive about. Yeah. And as the top editor, I think I am like a little bit of just the police of that we just don't look stupid and corny. Like that's, and and that we kind of are are demonstrating the artist in the light that we chose them for, you know? What makes a good music profile writer right now? I think I'm I'm looking for someone who's going to get the reporting I need, like who's going to not mess that up and going to sort of ask the tough questions, but also just be really thorough with yeah. backstory. And it, that sounds really obvious, but often we're working with people who haven't written a lot of profiles before. Yeah. And then sort of like I said, we're looking for someone who's going to kind of connect the dot between this artist and their work or this person in their life and why that's connecting with people and sort of what it says about where culture is headed you know that actually is the thing every time and that's like when i'm making a pitch to somebody about why they should be in the fader and why they should give me four days of their life it's kind of like i want to show your fullness and why you matter and and you know fader started as a place that was almost explicitly like promotional or more of a trade magazine and there is like an industry idea that has created a lot of good karma around our brand that sort of like we don't do takedowns. And I think that's not unilaterally true. I mean, we certainly critique or ask questions, but in our profiles, at least, we're, we're choosing people who are interested in like championing or kind of caring for. Is four days typical? Is that how long most times you get with a profile? It's pretty all over the place. Yeah. I would say increasingly it's like two to three days for reporting and same for photo. And sometimes they overlap and sometimes they don't. And now we're usually, you know, sort of making video as well. So sometimes that means another three people are down there. This whole thing sounds like a total clusterfuck. Ooh, it can be <laughs> it can be really tough, actually. And a big part of what I do actually is kind of like traffic control these people. I'm like the good cop and the bad cop. Yeah. But, like, most of the time, the bad cop, I do a lot of, like, demanding things and trying to act like I have leverage when I don't and and then trying to kind of make everybody happy. You know, like, recently we had three days in Gucci Mane's house where he was on house arrest and we made a video and we had a reporter who had time by himself, which was important both to him and to me. 
And then we had like a cover shoot and interior shoot and actually a second photographer who did like a different candid photography. So to kind of like make all of those people happy. Um, this job seems terrifying. <laughs> I mean, you just you must have angry people calling you all the time. Not. I mean, I think like I try to avoid it. I try my best. And, and at this point, right, I've, music is a small community. Yeah. And a lot of the people who are angry with me are people that know me or I've done favors for before. Right. Or something or I've just been nice to before. So that helps. Also, at the end of the day, it's like if Gucci Mane's publicist is upset with me or his manager or something, it's like at the end of the day, we both love Gucci Mane. Like we're right. both doing this because we actually really care about this music and this culture and I think that that like that's actually the only saving grace is like everybody who's involved in music and maybe specifically for me in rap music like yeah we've been looking for each other our whole lives or something and I think that's kind of like a huge part of what sort of why the fader has a, a positive bent is that you know it's it's it is a welcoming space it's like a clubhouse for the people it covers but also the readers right to kind of come in and, and feel like they've found people who they can care about and who might demonstrate something to them that could help them live a fulfilling life. I don't know. Hey, I'm going to pause things here for a quick word from our sponsors. I understand we got a Club W week here. Always always good time here when we have a Club W week. Love the people at Club W. Club W is a service that sends wine to your door. And the reason that I love it, in addition to the fact that you can sort of like train them on your preferences and they've got this really well-designed quiz that you take at the beginning. So they Palette know what, quiz. Palette quiz. They know what kind of wine you like. The wine is great. Uh, but here's the thing. It means that I don't have to keep going to the wine store on the corner, which my wife sends me to, and I walk in there, and I'm like, can I just get a decent bottle of wine for like 15 bucks? And these guys look at me with such pure snobbery, Aaron. Mm-hmm. I don't want to go there anymore. Have and I ever looked at you that way? On a daily basis, but I've come <laughs> to expect it and deal with it from you. I don't want to deal with it at the wine store, yeah. uh, which is why Club W is so great. Yeah, I uh, I heartily endorse their services. I'm uh, It's my birthday uh, tonight. I'm planning to have some of that uh, Club W wine. Did you go to clubw.com slash longform? I did. That's clubw.com slash longform. You, like Aaron, can get 20 bucks off. Our second sponsor today is Squarespace, which is a godsend for people who need to put up websites and don't know a line of code. It's actually great if you do know some code, but if you don't know any code, you know who doesn't know any code? Max Linsky. Hey there. Max, I understand you put up a website this week. I did, man. Without knowing any code. It was not this week. I, put I understand up... that you've been running a website for over five years and still don't know any code. It was, like, it was an act of self-defense to not learn how to code, but then Squarespace undermined me yeah. so I can no longer claim that I don't know how to do that work because uh, Squarespace makes it so easy. I built the pineapple site, yeah. Squarespace, in like an afternoon. It was actually super simple. They've got these beautiful templates. It just works. You're not starting with some sort of a raw blank canvas. You're actually starting with a site that looks pretty good for your kind of a purpose. Max's, they got some podcast stuff there. You can run a nice podcast on there. You can do some great e-commerce stuff. And if you get stuck, they've got great customer support. Best of all, you don't even need to put a credit card in to start tinkering. You can start building the site you want. You only pay for it when you put it up on the internet for people to enjoy. So how can they sign up, Max? Squarespace.com. Start building your website. When you're ready to uh, put it out in the world, use the offer code LONGFORM. You'll get 10% off. Squarespace, set your website apart. Here's back with Naomi Zeichner. You started out in music writing as a 
blogger. At Fader, I was like kind of like the web person. And I did a ton of short form writing. And then I did most of the interviews when artists would come to the office. Yeah. And sort of graduated from there to like I worked on a couple oral history projects. <laughs> That I think actually were like probably. I like to think of oral history as the stepping stone to future writing. I think it really is. I yeah. mean, I should really be assigning more oral histories to our junior writers. So, I'm curious now that you're you're basically thrusting people into this role that you figured out yourself, and you're you're saying you're going to be at Gucci Man person person some person's house for like three days. There's going to be a bunch of other people there. They're going to be <laughs> shooting a video. There's also going to be people taking some photos. But you'll probably get like a little bit of time alone. And you've never done this before. What are your marching orders? What do you tell that person to try to get in that limited window? We always need two interviews. They should be at least an hour long in a quiet place. That's like rule number one. Also, you need a follow-up call because you're not going to get everything you need. And so you have to like get their cell phone number so that you can text them a thousand times so you can get your follow-up call. <laughs> And honestly, like, I, I should probably be giving better. I think I'm giving usually a really big pep talk about kind of like how I see this story. Like, oh, this artist has been covered in this way, but I want this particular thing. And I'm really curious about this secondary and whatever, whatever. But I'm not saying like, and you need three and a half scenes. And I think that we usually send in someone who, whatever their experience level or their expertise in a certain kind of music, like, is someone who we truly do believe, like, is going to kick it with this person even if it's like awkward and sort of like a sitcom or something like that they're they are going to connect in some way like the that's that's the the order is like go connect okay so as someone who's never professionally kicked it uh, <laughs> i'm curious what professionally kicking it is like you show up you're staying at a hotel you go to someone's house how does that unfold and from the perspective of the writer what are you trying to get out of that kick at time like i think you're trying to have somebody be around you in their most natural way you're trying to overhear the conversations that they would actually have and be transparently there not be like creepily lurking but have them like just authentically share their life with you i mean i, I don't yeah. know and um you're also trying to sort of push into whatever you're trying to figure out about. I mean, if you're in the studio with Meek Mill while he's recording his new album and, you, you know, you want to, like, actually follow up whatever is happening there with real questions about what he's making and why. Okay, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take it as an example. Um, you wrote a cover story not only a few months ago, right? Maybe three or four months ago? Yeah, I think I mean, pretty recently. I'm only judging that on how long it's been since the Ray Remard album. Because the, the, <laughs> you wrote a story about Ray Remard who are... Um, a uh, very young duo of brothers. Um, I guess they're rappers. One of them sings also. Anyway, um, you wrote that profile shortly before their album came out. And that profile has a lot of the elements we've talked about. It's in some ways a reaction to the way that they've been covered elsewhere and some of the conflicting impressions that they have within fans and music industry people. So when you're going to hang out with these two brothers who are living in a weird mansion in LA, when you want to discuss the way that they're perceived, like there's a certain perception of them that they, let's say in this case, are um, not really making their music, that their music is being sort of masterminded by Mike Will made it. How do you work those angles into your conversation with the people who are the subjects? 
Uh, yeah, absolutely. But I I think that people underestimate the fact that artists talk about their own narratives all the time, right? Like they they know it's like it's in a social media age, they're yeah. probably you know they're responding to fans. They they know what people are saying. <laughs> it's funny so, that somehow it seems like breaking the fourth wall to me. <laughs> like whether whether they know that yeah. was going to become a crucial p- angle in my story or something. I mean, I didn't know, right? Sure. But like I think that. Of course, yeah, of course. And that story was actually really funny because, you know, I kind of had some like warm up time. They were in New York doing a late night show. So I kind of like went and did that with them. And I think that's like ideal, right? If yeah. they can just kind of like see your face before you arrive in their living room, that's nice. Um, but I was at their house for like a full day and I kind of just like. I don't even know what you would compare it to, like a school counselor or like a traveling doctor doing <laughs> checkups on every. Like I, I interviewed almost everybody who lives in the house, which is a lot of people. So I kind of just like did one and then was like, OK, like your turn, you know. Yeah. And I think people were appreciative of that, that ev- they knew sort of that everybody was going to participate in the story. But it, I actually sort of ended up asking most of these people kind of like some of the same questions. So I had a really interesting kind of like cross um, or just like a really detailed account of you know, certain parts of their story. What do you ask the other people who live in race ramp? Like, what do you ask the guy who kind of drives them around and makes sure they don't get in trouble? Like, what are your questions for him? I don't know. I mean, but like, literally, I asked them all of them the same question. Like, oh, really? why, why don't people take you guys seriously? Like, I, I asked all 20 of them that question, <laughs> you know, and they all had really different answers. And I don't know, like, yeah. After you've gone through the first 10 people in the house, what are you looking for from the last 10 on the ladder? (laughs) Well, it depends. I think some of the guys who live with them have known them when they were 14, Mm -hmm. and some of them are more active in their business dealings or something. So everybody, I think, had a particular angle to share. I was really interested. They're sort of – they have a couple, like, day-to-day managers, but one of their assistants is just, like, a girl that they grew up with in Mississippi who is sort of, like, a white girl from the other side of town – but who they became friends with when they were really young. And I think, like, her stories and their stories about kind of, like, how high school parties worked in that segregated town were really interesting and I think, like, really relevant to the kinds of parties that they throw today. Um, You know, they have, like, a very integrated audience. So I thought that was a really interesting and subtle point. Was that something that you knew going in, something that you had heard about, about the way they grew up, or is that something that you uncovered directly in interviews? I think I knew that they were famous in in Mississippi for throwing house parties. Yeah. And I grew up in the South and kind of could imagine what that might look like. And I they have like a video that's like set in a country bar. You know, they kind of like embrace Southern culture yeah. in a way that might be unexpected. It was something that occurred to me might be interesting to explore. And then, you know, like that's the advantage of being able to interview 20 people instead of one is that, you know, somebody mentions something and then you ask them, oh, like he said that, like, what about that, you know? So, I mean, that was, for me, it was, like, really satisfying to kind of get to dig into that community. And I think, in you know, not everybody who gets famous brings all their friends to live in their house with them. So that was a really important part of the story was to kind of tell the story of them as a community. The thing that struck me is how much they feel like they're of a different generation. Like you just said, they are very open about being from the South and sort of celebrate it, which is certainly something you could have said about rap. 10 to 15 years ago, but it would have meant something completely different at that time. I'm interested in how you see like generation change in somewhere like the fader. Like, how do you think about staying current and what to focus on? It's really so I'm 29 and I'm from the South. And so my history of rappers, sort of my entry point and like what I see 
as the gravitational center is actually probably wildly different from most editors of rap magazines until this point in history, right? You know, I like grew up listening to and revering people like Jay-Z and Nas, but almost in the same way that I like, you know, went through the back catalog of the Rolling Stones, like, you know, but for me, like, Outkast is like the foundation of all music or something. Yeah. And I think something that was always appealing to me about Fader, as someone who like, I mean, loves music, but never really identified with like sort of the sort of music writer culture as it might be seen in like, you know, 70s music writers or even like the pitchfork, like the idea of what pitchfork is or was when it started, was that it was sort of like curious and, and always trying to figure things out and never be like ignorant for no reason or something. But there wasn't like a preciousness about history. There wasn't like a unless you know all of this or unless you're comprehensive about this, you, you, you're you definitely wrong. You know, it was kind of like if you've identified something that's interesting and you've tried to learn as much as you can about it, that's worthwhile. And I think that was like always the ethos and that still is the ethos. But it's really interesting to me in working continually with artists is like, I'm 29, but I'm really old now, <laughs> like in the community. Yeah. Um, And there's a whole generation of things that I know about, like, you know, that are almost like technological. Like I was in middle school during the Napster era and like, you know, I don't I don't know, like what a playlist means to me or just like how files were shared, like even like like Lil Wayne era mixtape culture. Yeah. Like kids today don't know about like for them, like Wiz Khalifa is the beginning of history or something. Yeah. Uh, so that's just like, you know, and I but I like that. Like I right now in, in rap, there's like kind of a huge tired idea that kids are trying to kill their idols and kids have no respect for history and kids are making like bastardized crazy music and how dare they you know and this is like i just don't even know why we still care about this false dichotomy like i don't know kids are coming from where they come from and they're like going where they're going and it's just like do you want to try to learn about where they're coming from where they're going or or do you not you know i mean the entire history of well, you could almost say the entire history of Western music, but certainly the entire history of rap is like um, people making music that other people think is like weird kid music or overly simplistic, that becoming the dominant mainstream sound of music and then it becoming supplanted by younger kids who taking it even further in some direction. I mean, I guess what I find as a reader interesting about reading about rap is just the speed at which things are moving now. Like the internet is moving music so fast. I was on young thugs, YouTube page. Young thug publishes a full length documentary of his like life and tour every two or three months. I mean, that's an unprecedented clip of just, I don't even know what to call it, raw content being pushed onto the internet. How do you keep pace with that? And how has that changed the job? It's funny, like what we used to do on the blog or sort of like the core of our news product used to be like, here's a new song or here's a new album. Yeah. And now it's almost like, here is everything you need to know about the conversation that happened about that Instagram. Like we're like, we are just, <laughs> we're like um, keeping you updated on like the live stream of you know, arguments and memes. And I don't know. I, I mean, I think it's a lot more fun. Yeah. To be honest, like, I think that the stories are a lot more interesting. Well, it depends, obviously. I think there's ups and downs, and I think it can be very... What do you think about the internet? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm glad I'm not blogging anymore. You yeah. know, not to say that I'm not... I think I'm pretty involved in everything that's going up on the website and kind of definitely have, like, a, a deep empathy yeah. 
for the people who are who are catching it all. I mean, it really does just feel like at a batting cage. I'm imagining just like a machine spitting balls at you and you're literally just like, you're going to hit some of them. Right. And a lot of them you're not going to hit. But it is sort of at Fader, just as an institution, it's changed so dramatically. How much of the Fader's resources go to cover stories, profiles, high-quality, glossy photography versus having someone sitting on the internet all the time getting up posts immediately when things happen. Yeah, I mean, so outside of full-time staffing, which is like a whole other budget, and we probably have like, you know, we have kind of a, a core news editor and then staff writers who do stuff during the day. The budget for an issue outside of printing costs is about the same as the budget for a month of kind of web, you could call it. And the majority of that web budget goes to sort of permanent freelance writers who who are doing a lot of this, you know, and also like freelance writers who are just writing one-off things. But yeah, but oh, we make the magazine for like, it really, I, it, it's crazy. I would love to know if anybody else makes a magazine for this little money. <laughs> like I actually, I mean, I really, and I have no idea because I, in some ways, like yeah, these budgets, like I, I've no, I haven't known much else. So yeah, who taught you to be the editor in chief of a magazine? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> no one. I a joke that we make is uh, so I started as an intern at the Fader actually, and and another guy, this guy Duncan, started around the same time as me. So he's my deputy editor now, and we've worked together for six years or whatever. And I mean, our joke between ourselves is like folk journalism. Like we are folk journalists. I mean, and we still like I I think we you know if a, if a real copy editor went through my magazine. They would find a lot of commas that aren't supposed to be there, I'm sure. You know, like we only know what we're doing still to a certain extent. Does it split and fry your brain to be keeping an eye on a Twitter feed that's pumping music news all the time and be trying to orchestrate a print magazine that comes out once a quarter? I don't separate them in my brain. To me, it's just like keep the fader going. (laughs) Yes, that does fry my brain. But I think that. I would also actually, I wonder if anybody makes a magazine that's as quick turnaround. Like, I mean, right now, like this weekend, we're going to report a story for the issue that we're closing on September 15th. I mean, that's literally stupid and it's not always that way. But Does that ever just fail and and you miss? Well, we will see. So, <laughs> I, don't, I mean, usually we don't we don't kill stories for, for print really ever. Um, but I think that's part of why. It's like how, I mean, Fader's not going to feel zeitgeisty or something. Sometimes, like, it's a moving target. And, like, when somebody's having hype and when you're able to kind of jump in there and get the story before other people and with enough of a buffer that it's going to feel exclusive and kind of be worth reading, you do kind of just have to, like, run after it at what I would consider an internet pace. And then we just, like, happen to produce it in such a way that, like, you can print it in print and it looks like it should. The six years that you've spent from intern to editor-in-chief. That may be a uh, long-form podcast record, shortest distance from internship to editor-in-chiefdom. But I'm curious what led you to the point where you wanted to be a fader intern. I know that you are from the South. Where are you from? I'm from Athens, Georgia. Okay. So it's a music town. A rich music writing town. (laughs) I don't know about rich music writing. It seems like there would be music writers in Athens. There, Yeah, there's a guy... I feel like I should have him write something. There was a guy I grew up who was like the, you know, the music writer for our local Alt Weekly, which is a great Alt Weekly called The Flagpole. But, you know, yeah, I was into music my whole life and all different types of music, you know, like as into R.E.M. as I was into the Ying Ying Twins or whatever. And 
my dad is a professor and my family is pretty academically oriented or that was like the expectation. So I was pretty into like a, a punk community of some kind before I went to college. But in going to college, I was like, okay, now I need to like really figure it out. I need to do what I'm supposed to do. And then kind of was like sort of confused at college and, and didn't really know what how the pieces were adding up. You know, and I had like a radio show at college and was kind of definitely like the person who would download you your Lil Wayne MP3s. Yeah. So Were you writing at that point? Yeah, so I went to this college called Reed College that was like a pretty writing intensive school. And honestly, like, you know, I went to a, a not excellent public high school and I, I was like, I was woefully unprepared for the level of writing that they were. I mean, that was like really at Reed, all you do is write papers and they don't they don't tell you your grades, but they grade you and you have these like weird paper conferences that are kind of like the meetings that I have with my writers now, you know, and it was it was terrible. I mean, like, you know, I think my professor's thought I was pretty bad and they like could tell that I had potential but they were like you don't know how to organize like a single idea and I re- and I didn't and I was really struggling so was I, that a shock to you at the time no but it was like unpleasant you yeah. know I I definitely I didn't no it wasn't a shock because I wasn't like I had no illusion that I deserved it or that I was better than that I knew that I was a good thinker and a creative person but I knew that I hadn't refined those skills and and frankly I found it hard to refine those skills within that place because I don't think anybody really had time for me Uh, So I ended up studying art because for me, that was like the place that I kind of could like avoid some of these issues the most, you know, like I wasn't going to hack it in the anthropology department, frankly. And also like, what did I want an anthropology degree for? I didn't want that at all. And I I didn't want to be a working artist either, but I thought that that was kind of like the most practical home I could find at that school. You know, and now actually that I think about it, I'm like, I think I really like magazines because I like making the pictures too. I like making the design, like all of those things are really important for me. So... That was cool, but it was, like, great when it was over, and <laughs> I came to New York, like, right away, and, I mean, it was, it was a weird time, certainly, in media and, like, in the world of jobs in general. Kind of spent a couple months working in coffee shops and kind of trying to find a job, and I ended up working for this nonprofit run by Yo-Yo Ma, so he wanted to have an education program, so I kind of, like, helped him make it up and then, like, was the person who actually showed up week to week to make it happen in all of these middle schools. So that was like, that was a cool experience. I don't know, like Yo-Yo Ma did a Jay-Z cover at <laughs> at an event because I told him that might be a good idea. That was cool. So I did that for a while and and did enjoy it. And actually, now that I think back on it, I was like, you know, it was cool work. But at the time, I'm like, I'm on the subway for like four hours a day, working at a really weird, like on a weird schedule that none of my friends were on. And it was just kind of like, and I'm meanwhile, I'm like downloading dance hall mixes from the Vader and I was just like, you know what might be more fun than what I'm doing right now is, like, doing that. And I, and I think, too, like, uh, you know, it was kind of like I'm in New York. It's sort of like the height of, like, good Gawker era or something. There was an idea that, like, media was there for the taking. Yeah. And, and I think that's probably because so many, like, so many good people got laid off or so many good things ended. And then as, like, digital products picked up, they needed cheap people to do it. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I kind of was like, well, why not me? And you started writing at that point, too. Well, I literally just got the internship. Yeah. Did yeah. they let you write when you were an intern? A little bit. Yeah. 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 And and research and, and stuff like that. And I kind of I think that. Yeah. And I and I took like every opportunity. I mean, I, my education job was like half time. So like yeah. I remember like, you know, it was like CMJ and I was like covering a show at 3 a.m. And then I like woke up at 4 a.m. to like go to Queens to like. <sighs> Do art with kids for, you know, like from the minute I got there, I was like, I would really like to be here. So I was I was pushing as hard as I could to kind of show them that like I was 
aware of what they were doing and hoped to help. Did I mean, was there a career path there where it was like, eh, you could get like a job here if you sit, work at this lot? I mean, there's got to be a lot of interns at somewhere like the Fader. I imagine that you're just rich with interns. We, You know what? I think they had a great internship. I mean, at, so now our interns have to get college credit. At the time, this was like an unpaid internship. So that was really fucked up. Uh, and something I, you know, probably couldn't have done for much longer than I did it. But it was, but the payoff for that was that it was like actually there was I, there were, there was only two of us, and I felt like we got good attention, and and that it was actually just like kind of a farm team. Like there there had been interns who had been hired at the Fader before. So I don't I don't think I started with the idea that I would get a job, but I did start with the idea that I would like learn a little bit about this industry and see if it was something that I could do. So, but it was, I, you know, I actually just like, it was sort of, a, I think, a transitional time. Fader kind of has these eras and then, yeah. like, yeah, people burn out or people move on. You know, like, it is kind of a place also where people get hired into, like, more established media companies or something. So, I think when there was a space, they were like, oh, well, like, this girl loves to blog. <laughs> she could just blog. And it was also, right, like, there there was this balance then between the magazine and the website and like in the two weeks before the magazine would ship like the website would kind of just like fall to the wayside and I think for them I was like a person who would like make sure the website didn't fall to the wayside because in 2010 that was all of a sudden they were like wait like we need stuff on our Twitter like all the time so how did you you know after having this experience in college where you felt over your head um it seems to me like succeeding somewhere like the fader requires a lot of confidence in a way. Like you have to believe that you can do it, believe that you can write and believe that you can fill all of these different roles. Like I'm I'm curious about that journey for you. How did you get to the point where you felt like you could be an editor in chief type person? I think it took like at least two years before I felt like I was writing well or, yeah. you know, I think that I knew I could do a, a blog post. Like I knew I could very quickly set up a good song or that I could pick the right songs to put and yeah. I think that was kind of actually really like the task at hand they were like just don't don't put anything lame on the website <laughs> so I knew I could do that but I also I mean I knew very presently that I was making a lot of mistakes and I was even like editing people's blog posts I knew I was making mistakes at that and you know there was kind of Fader was populated then by like kind of writers that had a lot of personality yeah and I, I felt very acutely that I didn't have that personality and I still I mean it's funny like I actually I haven't said it a lot now but yeah I always used to be like I'm not really a writer like I don't have like a character <laughs> you know I just like observe stuff <laughs> and I guess that's changed I mean it's changed because I've just done a lot more but I feel like for me like I can almost like pinpoint like there was like an aha moment whenever I was like I'm not constantly flailing anymore like I do know some formulas that I can just like sit back on but I used to you know when I got like my first like you know short profile assignment or something like 800 words or a thousand words I mean I remember just like literally like pasting 5,000 words of notes into a Microsoft Word document just like staring at it and crying you know like that's that's how I used to write and that's so crazy and I work really hard now I mean, maybe even to a fault to kind of share with interns or young writers or, or experienced writers I'm working with, like, the tools that I've found to refine that process for me because, like, I don't know. I And I still, like, it. I, I only write as much as I do because it's still, like, a painful process for me. And now you're, when you're writing, you're also running the magazine at the same time. Yeah, so it's not usually a good idea. <laughs> I only I only take a story now if I'm really the right person for it. Like, I'm, I'm the... You know, I, I, I the joke I make all the time is like that I'm a matchmaker, right? I'm like matching people together. And like sometimes I'm like, oh, I'm the match. Like it's me. So I got to do this one. But 
you know, a lot of times I'll have a story that I have like that I almost like would like to do and that I have a really clear vision for. And I'll choose a writer that's like close to me that I've worked with before and kind of like sort of really try to make sure they get it exactly like I would do it. The music writing industry and the music industry both have a reputation as less than friendly towards women. Um, I'm wondering what your experience has been like over six years at various different steps along a ladder. Uh, when I started, I do think that there was sort of male characters, whether they were in my office or outside my office, who I did think were generally like skeptical of me. And especially, like I said, I didn't have like a strong compass that made me sure of things. Like I was more of a question asker than somebody who was like, I definitely know this artist sucks and I definitely know this other one doesn't. Like I just didn't have that desire. Yeah. And so I felt like that was and that was something that a lot of men thought about a lot of women that like women didn't know what they thought or what they wanted and like didn't have like as definitive of opinions or something. But I think I don't experience that a lot now. And I actually think that a lot of like, frankly, like a lot of the top editors at a lot of the music publications are women. Like the editor in chief of XXL is a woman. Like, you know, the person who runs news at Pitchfork for the last like 10 years or whatever is a woman. Like women are holding this whole shit up, you know? (laughs) So it's like weird to say like women oh, like, how does it feel for you to be, like, a woman who, like, broke through? I'm like, nah, like, it's all women up here, yo. Yeah. Like, you know, like... Did you know that going in? I mean, like, did you know that there were women at the top of a lot of these places? I knew that the best editor-in-chief of The Fader had been a woman. Yeah. You know, I knew that, the like, that the magazine that I liked and the reason that I was in that building was because of... I mean, like, you know, Alex Wagner was the editor-in-chief of Fader. She was super excellent. I think her vision for the magazine is, like, really relevant to what it is now. You know, and, and Julianne Shepard had been like a top editor there and kind of definitely defined what the website was. So I knew that. I mean, and that was cool to walk into that building. Um, I mean, that said, like at the time, it was like mostly dudes, um, but they were cool dudes, like really nice guys who taught me a lot, you know. So, yeah, but I, I definitely have had experiences like where... You know, like one time Puff Daddy called me and like thought I was an intern when I like definitely wasn't, (laughs) you know, like, I don't know if that's because I'm a woman or because Puff Daddy's an asshole, like, (laughs) you know, or like, you know, somebody starts flirting with you during an interview. But I think like people have throw off tactics and, and weird nerves about lots of stuff, you know, and I think that like, yeah, I don't know. And for me, it's like been really fun, especially sort of like within the rap community or something to kind of like just model for some people what a female reporter can act like or, or a female sort of like bad cop, like negotiator can act like. And also to meet so many amazing women who do the same thing in so many ways, whether they're like managers or day-to-day managers or writers or editors, like women hold up the music industry. Has the reaction to your taste changed from being an intern to the editor-in-chief? Do people more readily accept your ideas now? I really don't know. I think people have always known that I'm that I'm onto something <laughs> and that it's like and that it's my thing. You've always had it. It's not, I've had something, yeah. you know, and I don't have a ton of confidence or something about what I truly believe, but like I do know if I like something or not and I know it like pretty quickly. And that goes for music or but that also goes for like whether something's a story worth doing or not, you know, and I am pretty like stubborn and emphatic about those feelings um is it weird when you have writers who really want to profile someone and you're like ah this sucks no kind of yeah, yeah. and a lot of t- <laughs> yeah i mean and those are also it seems kind like of- a gr- good way to start a bunch of grudges i feel like oh, definitely yeah. 
But or, or sometimes, you know, I'll like really believe in an artist and really kind of see it. And, you know, some people on the staff will be down and other people on the staff will be bitching about it. It's not the easiest to manage a team of like very strong minded, very creative people. I mean, the people who kind of want to do Fader as a job, like have a lot of characteristics, but like they all are people who are also onto something and it's also it's their thing and like we don't all agree all the time like there's not a lot of consensus in the room um but i do think like i try to pursue that like when there is consensus i try to really pursue that thing and like yeah do you sometimes pursue when there's like a significant dissenter out there or you are the significant dissenter but the staff uh gloms together against you i've definitely kind of pushed through things that are things i believe in that other people do not believe in. And and occasionally I feel like I've heard a lot of people be like, oh yeah, you, I see it now. If I'm not into something, it's probably not going to happen on a scale that we spend a ton of money on. <laughs> it, it'll definitely, it could happen, but I might not be a huge Web part only. of it. Yeah, uh, I don't know. <laughs> so my final question is we had, um, we had David Remnick on the show a few weeks ago. David Remnick has been the editor of The New Yorker for 20 some odd years. Pretty much his whole adult life, he's been the editor of The New Yorker. You mentioned earlier that Fader works in these waves. People get burnt out. Is that something you think about? Where do you see yourself going from here? And what do you see as the tenure of a Fader editor? I think about it all the time. <laughs> in some, you know, in some ways, like when I started in this, I never thought. I never, ever thought I could be somebody who could work at the New York Times or like work at, you know, work work at a, at a real magazine. Yeah. And and I still, you know, and, and frankly, those places still aren't calling me, even though I think we have a really good magazine. And sometimes I wonder why. Like, sometimes I wonder if I'm super delusional and what we're doing is not top quality editorial um, or if it's just sort of so niche and so outside. But I do think a lot about wanting to keep learning and wanting to make sure I'm still learning on this job. A consistent thread in my life is that I do kind of like learning as a group. And that's what appealed to me about education or even appealed to me about art. And it is what like appeals to me still about this job is like we're all learning together on behalf of our readers or like with our readers. So for now, I don't know who like the longest editor in chief of the Fader is. Like I don't know if anybody made it to three years. I have no idea. <laughs> you might already be the uh, longest. I chief. might. I don't. I'm not going to say that I am, but it's totally possible. And I and so that's right. It's it's. A, I'm at a weird point where I'm like, do I just like go run away and like take like some kind of super junior position somewhere else and just like hope that I become a real journalist? Like for me, the answer is is definitely no. Like I, I think that. It's been really cool to see Fader grow in the way that it has uh, in the last couple of years. You know, like our audience is like grown by like six times or something. And we just have resources that we never had. And so I think for me, a lot of the stories that we've done in the past year that I'm most proud of, I'm kind of, you know, thinking about how I can do different versions of those. You know, like I became a music fan or became like a culture fan because I loved watching documentaries on MTV and like. I'm kind of like, how can I keep doing what I'm already really good at in in new ways? So I think that's that's where I'm at right now. Is like, I, I think Fader is an amazing brand. I I think I work with amazing people. I actually like, if I want to stay in media, I don't know where it gets better. Yeah, you know, I think I think it's pretty good. So I want to just kind of keep keep digging and and learn sort of more production skills. You know, I I know how to to really fuck up some text, but I you know, like I, I think there's other things I could learn. So that that's where I'm at right now. Sounds good. Thank you very much, Naomi Zeigner. Thanks. 
And that was the Long Form Podcast. Thank you very much to Naomi Zeichner. Thanks to our editor, Mickey Capper, my co-host, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff, our intern, Courtney Harrell, our amazing sponsors, MailChimp, Squarespace, Club W. Thank you. You make this show possible. We'll be back next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.